2 Samuel chapter number 6. And I want to preach to you for a little while this morning on how we receive the presence of God. How our attitude is about the presence of the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter number 6 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the cart, the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. He called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How shall the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And it was so that when they, had bear, they that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatlings. Now, verse 14, if you've, if you've got an independent Baptist study Bible, they probably cut verse 14 out. But your Bible still says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with the shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he dealt among all the people, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as men, to every one a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, every one to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovered himself. And David said unto Michael, It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father, before all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. 
And yet, and I will yet be more vile than thus, and will be base in mine own sight, and of the maidservants which thou hast spoken of, of them shall I be had in honor. Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child unto the day of her death. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the power of the Word of God. Lord, I pray that your Word would be powerful this morning, that we'd not make it void, but God, that it would be able to do a work in our hearts and in our lives that we most desperately need. Now, Father, I pray that your Son would be magnified. Lord, I do pray for the lost, and if there's any amongst us that are lost, I do pray that they'd come to know your Son. Lord, you said that if you'd be lifted up, you'd draw all men to yourself, and you did that at Calvary. Lord, I pray that in this church today, your, your precious Son would be lifted up and magnified in this place. Lord, that we'd all see in Him the satisfaction and sufficiency for our every need. Lord, we love you this morning, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, 2 Samuel chapter number 6 is one of the most problematic passages in all the Word of God for a lot of churches and for a lot of preachers. But I don't think we see anything in 2 Samuel chapter number 6 that's out of biblical order or out of scriptural order. And I'm not going to preach all the time this morning. We'll say something about David and his dancing before the Lord. That doesn't bother me one bit. That bothers my flesh because all worship bothers my flesh. Uh, Real worship is always an affliction to the flesh of the individual. But this morning, what I really want to focus on is four different people and the way that they behaved when faced with the presence of God. Old Bob Jones Sr. used to say that everybody ought to get in the glory at least once. And I think there's a lot of people that say, I'm not that kind of preacher, that if they'd ever yield to the Lord, they may be that kind, they may not be that kind, but they wouldn't even know it because they've never gotten that way. Amen? And in Second Samuel chapter 6, we have the ark of God. And you might as well go ahead and when you think of the ark of God, think of the presence of God. Because the ark was the place where the presence of God was manifest for the nation of Israel. The Lord told them to make an ark of Shittim wood and make a mercy seat and place over it. We, when we were studying through the throne rooms, uh, just back of this, we noted this in Exodus, uh, I believe chapter number 24, the Lord says to make that ark. And He says, there will I meet with thee. And so the Lord says that ark is where I'm going to meet with my people. And that ark will be symbolic of my presence. Now, for 20 years, and we'll read it here in a moment, but for 20 years, the ark of God had been absent from the nation of Israel. It had sort of been on a sojourn. It had got taken uh, when uh, the, sins, uh, the sins of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, caught up with the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel was uh, smitten by the Philistines. Uh, you remember the story. You, you remember how that a little baby was born, and they named that child Ichabod. And they said that the glory has departed from the nation of Israel because the ark of God was taken. And the Philistines, they got a hold of the ark of God, and it was more than they could handle. They weren't expecting the presence of God to do to them what it did. Let me say this. The only reason the presence of God is a pleasant place for me is because I've been justified in Jesus Christ. Our God is a consuming fire. And I don't know that I'd be so keen on His presence if I wasn't born again. Now you say, preacher, what if I'm here today and I'm not born again? Well, you don't have to fear the presence of God. We're going to talk in a minute about how you can be embracing of the presence of God. But it was more than the Philistines could handle. And so they had uh, took it to the side and they had put it in the house uh, of a man by the name of Abinadab from kerjath Jerem. And there it had sat for 20 years. The Bible tells us that in all the days of Saul, they had not inquired at the ark 
of the Lord, the ark of God. Uh, you know, it, you don't have to go far to find out why Saul's reign was a failure. Uh, people say, well, Saul's uh, reign was a failure because he rebelled against the Lord. And that's true. People say, well, Saul's uh, reign was a failure because he wasn't David. And, well, there's some truth to that. Although, if you'll remember, the Lord gave Saul an opportunity, gave the nation of Israel an opportunity. He said, if you'll follow him and if you'll follow me and if you'll be obedient, then I'll bless him and I'll use him. And they did not do that. The real reason that Saul's reign was a failure, and listen closely now, is because he would not seek at the ark of God. Let me say that without the presence of God, any preacher, any pastor, any ministry, any church, any group of believers without the presence of God is destined for failure. Christ said, without me, ye can do nothing. Now, I know there'd be some that'd say, well, church, preacher, there's some churches that are all about worship, not about work. Not if it's real worship, they're not. Because work is always the outpouring of real and true worship. If we're not really working, then it's because we're not really worshiping. And if we're not really worshiping, then we won't be really working. Worship and work go hand in hand. You see, there's a place at His feet, but there's also a place in His field. And there is a work to do, but that work can only commence once the worship has taken place. If a church is to be successful, it must have the presence of God. If a church can be successful without the presence of God, then it can be successful without giving glory to God. And God will not share His glory with anyone. Now, a church might run a lot of people, a church might have a lot of ministries, but it will make no lasting impact for eternity without the presence and power of God. That's the only way it can be accomplished. And so we see in the nation of Israel that all the battles that they won in the times of Saul didn't last for very much. All of the ground that they gained during the life of Saul, they did not hang on to. And it's because they were living without the presence of God. Well, David, Saul is dead now. Jonathan is dead. David has been crowned in Hebron and been crowned in Jerusalem. David has made up his mind that if he's going to reign and if he's going to serve the Lord and honor God, he's got to have the presence of God. And so David does the right thing, but he does it in the wrong way. He says, I want to bring up the ark of God. I want the presence of God in my kingdom. I want the presence of God in my throne room. I want to make my throne room his throne room. I want to make his throne room my throne room. I want God to be in what I'm doing. So David says, we're going to go down to the house of Abinadab and get the ark of God. Well, things didn't go exactly like David had planned. And uh, we could certainly spend a lot of time this morning talking about the new cart. Uh, There's no question that we live in a day of new cart Christianity. We think if somebody writes a book and it sells enough copies and it gives us some instructions and this, that, and the other, and all of a sudden if we do this and if we apply this formula with a dash of this and a sprinkle of that and a pinch of this, then all of a sudden our, our church is going to explode with growth. It, it was said one time, I believe it was uh, Rick Warren, uh, you know, he, he's the, he's the uh, purpose-driven idiot, right? Uh, Rick Warren said this, said that churches can't be built anymore just through preaching and praying. He's wrong about that. What he meant to say was that uh, ministries and empires and uh, great groupings and gatherings of secular people cannot be built through preaching and praying. And that's true. But the church can only ever be built through preaching and praying and witnessing and revival and the work of God. If you build anything without preaching and praying, you've not built a church. You may have built a building, you may have a group of people, you may have a following... But you do not have a church without preaching and praying and revival and witnessing and the things of God. 
And certainly there could be a lot said about the new card of Christianity. And that, that is definitely the mantra of today. Got a bigger way and a better way and a smarter way to do it than God's way. But really, as we examine this passage, we find that the problem was not wholly within the new cart, but was within the response and the behavior of a handful of people. And I'm going to give you two good people and two bad people this morning, two good examples and two bad examples about how we respond to the presence and work and power of God. I want you to notice, first off, a man by the name of Yuza. We're introduced to him here in 2 Samuel chapter number 6 under that name. He's got a brother by the name of Ahio. The Bible tells us that their father's name was Abinadab. They had grown up in the house that housed the ark of God. Their problem was not a lack of the presence of God. Their problem was a love of the presence of God. And let me just say this. I've had to come to terms with this in ministry. Uh, that There's times when everything's right but the people. I didn't think that'd be popular. <laughs> Who was I kidding, you know? I'm not saying, I'm not excluding myself. I'm just saying there's times when, when everything's right but, but the people, and that includes the preacher. There's times when there's, there, it's, it's not necessarily the, 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 the preaching or the singing or the, or the friendliness. Or the, let me just say that people sometimes can hinder the growth of a church. There can be sin in the camp. And it can be from the preacher, it can be from the, the ushers, it can be from the, the, the visitors, it can be from the people, it can be from anyone. But let me say that sin hinders the work of God. And just because that there is the presence of God, that doesn't mean that people are given and yielded over to the presence and power of the working of God. And we see in this passage, we see a young man, I want you to notice first off his proximity to the ark of God. In fact, let's just turn back and read it. You, you don't have to, but I'm going to. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, we hear about how the ark of God came to Abinadab's house. The Bible says, And the men of Kerjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kerjath-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented before the Lord. Notice uses proximity to the ark of God. It was in the very house that he lived in. I mean, this young man had grown up around the place where God manifests His glory and His mercy. Let me say this, that there's a lot of kids and a lot of young people and even a lot of grown adults that spend 15, 20, 30, 40 years in the church house. But that doesn't make them right with God. We see in Yusa somebody that was indifferent to the presence of God. He was there. He had grown familiar with it. He had grown used to it. It had become part and parcel for his day in and day out. And let me just say this, that sometimes I fear, myself included, sometimes myself foremost, that we really take for granted what we've got in this day that we live in. Boy, I don't know about you, but I didn't have to, of course, I didn't have to drive anywhere this morning to get here, but if I had had to drive somewhere, I don't know about you, but you probably didn't drive through any checkpoints to get here. You probably didn't have to uh, conceal your purpose this morning as you left the house. You probably didn't have to leave in casual clothes and find a place to change into dress clothes just to conceal where you were going and what you were doing this morning. 
When we walked into this place, we didn't have to go down into the sewers or into the catacombs or into the tunnels and stealthily follow secret symbols scribbled upon walls that led us to a place of worship. No, this morning we drove up, we got out of our car, we came in here a place with a sign in the yard, a place with a steeple on the roof where God can meet with us. I'm saying that sometimes we take for granted what we've got. If you're here this morning without a Bible, it was your own choosing. Because there's churches on every, or, or stores on every corner that'll sell you a Bible. If, if you got here this morning without praying, it's your own choosing because we have the freedom and liberty to pray. Not just praying inwardly, but praying outwardly as well. I'm saying that we've been very blessed in this day that we live in. We spend a lot of time complaining and moaning and crying, and I understand it. I understand the country's in awful shape. I understand things are getting worse. I'm aware of that. But listen to me right now. We've got it better than generations have ever had it. We have more freedom and more liberty today than we've ever had. And sometimes with that, there's a danger in the familiarity that is developed. We just take for granted that it's there, and it's always going to be there. And we don't need it today, but when the day comes that we will need it, it will be there. Uh, Yuza had this notion and this attitude that the presence of God was no big deal. Because he had grown up with it every day. Every day. He had grown up with the presence and power of God in his household. Well, I want you to notice his proximity, but I want you to notice his pride. What did this cause him to do? Well, look what it says in our text here. Look at verse number 6. The Bible says, And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Yuza put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. Let me just say that if, if, if this uh, ark had been undergirded the way that God wanted undergirded, it would have never shaken in the first place. And, uh, you know, what you build upon is going to determine what you've got at the end of the day. Uh, you can build a big, beautiful house, but if you build it on sand, you don't have much and it won't last long. And so there must be some substance to the working of God. In other words, it's, it's not all just shouting. It's not all just backflips. It's not all just the dancing before the Lord. There's some substance and some foundation to it as well. And we do need to be grounded, there's no question. If that ark had been sitting on the shoulders of the Levites like God ordained it, there would have been no need. And beyond that, user wouldn't have even been in the place to have stuck out his hand and touched it. So we're, there were some things wrong in the transportation of but Let me say that there were some things wrong in his thinking as well. What was he trying to do? He reached out a hand because he thought he could help God do it the right way. He felt like God needed his assistance in what was taking place. There was no fear in Yuza's heart and mind to reach out and touch the ark of God. Instead, he felt like he could do it better than God could do it and stabilize and help it. I, I'm trying. I'm trusting the Lord to help me to preach this exactly how it needs to be preached this morning. I, I, I see in Yuza a picture, and I don't always, I'm not always this explicit, but I'm going to be as explicit as I can. I see in Yuza a picture of the lost sinner, the church kid that has grown up in the house of God, that has grown up under the preaching of God. I see in Yuza the picture of the adult that's hiding out with an empty testimony from 40 years ago that they made up on the spot someone that doesn't have God in their life, that doesn't have a notion of a relationship with God, but they're clinging to something that even they didn't believe 40 years ago, and they're hiding out right by the ark of God. In a place where God works, in a place where God moves, and they're hiding, and they've lost all respect and all reverence for the work and power of God. 
he reached out and we see his pride lift him up. You know, pride is probably the most wicked sin that the Bible deals with. It was pride that lifted Satan up and it's pride that casts us down. It's pride. Pride is the reason that a man dies and goes to hell. People say, we die and go to hell because we're sinners. That's not why we die and go to hell. Christ died for sinners. I'm, I'm a sinner, but I, I'm not on my way to hell. Not because I'm anybody or something or special, but because Christ already paid my sin debt. You say, well, why do people reject Christ? Out of pride. Out of pride. Don't want to admit that they need a Savior. Don't want to admit they've lived a lie. Don't want to admit that they need Christ and that they've never been saved. We see his pride lifted up. He reached out to try to help. We see that he reached out to try to handle it. There is such thing as a godly reverence for the things of God. We live in a day where we pretty much have things our way and do things on our time. And I fear that with that we have lost a reverence for the things of God. And they're no longer holy to us. I'm glad he's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Let me say this, just because he's a friend that sticketh closer than a a brother, that doesn't mean that he's not still the Lord God Almighty whose ways are higher than our ways and whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And there's a reverence that we ought to have for the things of God. It alarms me. I, I was a Christian school kid, and it alarms me the way that Christian school kids are. Just Just the sheer and utter disdain for the things of God totally unmovable, totally unshakable when God is moving and working. I was there. There's been a time in my life when I was there. There's been a time in my life where God wanted to move and work and I wouldn't let Him move and work because I'd gotten used to it. And it was no big deal anymore. Just no big deal anymore. Yeah, so what? God saved somebody. No big deal anymore. Yeah, yeah, so what? God, God helped somebody. That's no big deal anymore. That was Yuza. This was just all old hat to him as he rode along on the new cart. Then I want you to notice his punishment. What happened as a result of this? Well, we see that Yuza lifted out his hand. They went over the threshing floor. The ark began to shake. He reached out his hand. And it says in verse number 7, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Yuza, and God smote him there for his error. Now listen to this and think of the impact of this phrase. And there he died by the ark of God. I've always heard it said before that no one ever died in the presence of God. And I know what is meant by that. I understand that in the earthly ministry of Christ, He broke up all the funerals. I'm aware. But in Yuza, we see someone dying in the very presence of God. We see someone by the ark of God laying dead because of his sin and because of his pride. Don't think just because you've been in church all your life that you can't still die and go to hell. If you've never been born again then you're just as in danger of hell today as you were at the darkest and blackest moment of your life. Don't think just because your name's on a church roll, don't think just because you know what clothes to wear and what Bible to carry, that that means that you're right with If you've never been born again, if you've never been saved by the grace of God, then you're just as in danger of hell today. It doesn't matter what you've cleaned up and washed up and painted up and primmed up. You're still as in danger of hell today as you've ever been. Yuza died by the ark of God. There he lay, his lifeless body. And, and how sad that must have been. Don't you know, maybe Abinadab wished he had spent a little bit more time teaching his boys reverence for the things of God 
as he stood there over the lifeless body of his son that God had smoten. Uh, don't you know that Abinadab maybe had wished that he himself had treated the ark of God with a little more reverence? You know, part of the reason that young people treat the things of God so lightly is because grown people treat the things of God so lightly. How can we expect our children to have a reverence for the house of God when we miss it for any and every reason? How can we expect our young people to have a reverence for the Word of God when we never pick it up and read it? How can we expect our young people to have have a belief and a faith in prayer when they never see us pray. Oh, what a sad day for Abinadab as a daddy's heart breaks and he looks over the lifeless body of his son who died because he did not respect the things of God. I bet Abinadab wished he had done some things a little different than he had done them. Twenty years he had the ark of God in his presence and he wasn't able to teach Yuza enough to know to keep his hands off of it. We have a window of time. What are we doing with it? You know, one of these days, if the Lord tarries, you and I, we're going to die. We're going to die. We don't know when that is. It could be at any moment. We don't know when we're going to leave this world. But right now, we have a window of time in which to get our families, to get our young people, to get our spouses under the presence and power and preaching of the Word of God and to seek and to pray for God to do a work in their hearts. Right now, we have a window of time to teach and to train and to mold and to shape. But that time is expiring. It's too late for Benadab to teach Yuza anything now. Yuza had to learn the hard way. Yuza died by the ark of God. We see in Yuza an indifference to the presence of God. But then we see the opposite side of the coin. I get great comfort by this. The Bible says in verse number 10, So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. But David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. If we were to have on one side of the coin Yuza, a man that's always been in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, a man that had every reason to fear God and to know God, but despite all his raising, despite all of that time, despite 20 years of sitting there in the presence of the Ark, he rejects God's teaching and God's truth, reaches out his hand and dies. If we have in Yuza a picture of indifference, we have in Obed-Edom a picture of embracing. Because Obed-Edom is the opposite end of the spectrum. Obed-Edom had not had the ark of God in his presence. And can I say it this way, best as I know how, I want you to notice the arrival of the ark of God to Obed-Edom. Let me just say, Obed-Edom wasn't looking for it. He had every reason to believe that the ark of God would pass by his house and go on to the city of David. He wasn't looking for the ark to show up. I don't know. Obed-Edom is a Levite. There's every likelihood to believe that Obed-Edom may have been there in some proximity to the ark of God as it was passing by. And Obed-Edom would have never imagined that God would have made a stop by visit in his house for three months. You say, what's the difference, preacher? When Yuza was faced with the presence of God, he was indifferent It didn't mean much to him. When Obed-Edom is faced with the presence of God, he's inviting to it. David, I'm sure, was heartbroken. The Bible says it displeased David when Yuza died because the Lord had made a breach upon Yuza. David said, I don't understand it. 
And probably with heartbreaking tears, David went, went to the side, went to the house of Obed-Edom and said, Have you any room for the Ark of the Covenant? Obed-Edom, is there a place in your house where the Ark of God can rest until it goes to move again? Obed-Edom, here we are. The ark of God is at your front door. You have a choice to make. What will you do? You know, that's kind of like the sinner that accepts the Lord, isn't it? We see the sinner that's faced with the presence of God day in and day out. Faced with the preaching of the Word of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, day in and day out. But turns him away. But then we see Obed-Edom who gets his opportunity that he wasn't looking for, that he wasn't expecting, that he wasn't planning And what does he do? He says, oh yes, I have room for the ark in my house. If no one else wants it, if no one else will take it, I'll allow it in my house. Aren't you thankful that there came a day when the presence of God passed your way? Aren't you glad God gave you that opportunity? What a privilege, what a blessing, what a beautiful truth for the presence of God to come by your way. Hey, it had just left somebody that had died because they had rejected it. But it came by your way. You had a choice to make. Could have said like Obed-Edom. Could have said, most of you would probably say this, I don't know. Don't you hate it when company drops in on you? Be honest now. We're in the church house, don't you? Isn't it a little irritating? I mean, you you like people to come over. It's not, But, you know, you kind of like to get ready and plan. Kind of like to get things cleaned up, you know? Obed-Edom, he didn't wait till he got things cleaned up to let the ark in. He just went ahead and let the ark in while he had an opportunity. He didn't wait to get everything fixed up and cleaned up. He just went ahead and let the ark of God come on in because that was his opportunity. Let me tell you something. If you're here today and you're one of these that's been hiding out, there's no better day than today. What will people think of me? Who cares what people think of you? Anybody that thinks anything other than hallelujah isn't right with God and isn't worth you paying mind to him anyway. And even if it did matter, I don't believe I'd die and go to hell for anybody. Obed-Edom was inviting. We see the arrival of the ark, but we see the abiding of the ark. In other words, the ark didn't just stop in and then run out, but it made a lasting difference. It stayed for three months. Now you say, preacher, does that mean a sinner after he gets saved, he's going to live for the Lord three months? Well, no, that's not what it means. We're going to see the end of the story here in a moment. But let me just say this, that when God shows up, it's a real thing, it's a substantial thing, and it's a lasting thing. It wasn't just, you know, part of the problem is, is this Christianity that we preach, it'll get folks down an aisle on Sunday, but won't change their life on Monday. There's a problem with that. And don't misunderstand me. I mean, I understand that you've got... The gospel is dragnet fishing. It is. And you're going to have some that's going to get out of the net and some that's going to stay in the net. I know there's always, as long until Jesus comes, there will always be false professions. I know that. I'm aware of that. And I know it's something we're never going to completely do away with. As long as the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, we're always going to have false professions. But there is something intrinsically wrong when we preach a Christ that can save men but not change men. God always changed anything He ever showed up to do anything. Anytime you see a Christ show up in someone's life, they were eternally and forever different. So we see that it abided for three months. It didn't just stop in and it abided. But then I want you to notice the aftermath of it. How did it change him? Well, you say, preacher, three months doesn't seem like very long. I hope God could save me for longer than three months. Well, you're misunderstanding. Because 
The story of the ark in the house of Obed-Edom ends after three months. But the story of Obed-Edom and the ark doesn't end after three months. Did you know that after the ark of God showed up to his house, he was forever changed? Everything was different. In fact, I want you to notice, as you study his name and his life, you find him popping up time and time again after this. You don't hear anything about him before 2 Samuel chapter 6. But after 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's like you can't get enough of Obed-Edom. He's in there several times. Let me give you one of them, for instance. I want you to notice what it says in 1 Chronicles 15, 14. The Bible says, So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. Now this is talking about... See, David realized he had done things wrong the first time. And so he decides that he's going to do it right the second time. The ark was to be borne upon staves upon the shoulders of the Levites. And all the Levites would follow in suit. Now here in a second, we're going to see that Obed-Edom, he wasn't a Benjamite. He wasn't from Judah. He was a Levite. And so the reason the story doesn't end there is because when the ark left Obed-Edom's house, Obed-Edom left to follow in it. Let me say that it gave him a new path to walk. Gave him a new path to walk. It changed where he was at. Thank God it changed where he was going. And he said, wherever that ark is, that's where I want to be. Wherever that ark is, that's where I want to be. I'm going to be very careful with what I'm about to say. We're very blessed that God shows up and meets with us. I know there's churches, I'm sure, that dwell in the glory more than we do. I don't doubt that one bit. I'm sure there's churches closer to God and God's doing more of a work. But I'm thankful to be a pastor of a church where God shows up. I'm thankful for that. And sometimes I feel bad for some folks that stay in dead churches. And they're not fed, they're not helped, they're not blessed, their families are suffering, but they just stay. They stay for a lot of reasons. They stay out of loyalty sometimes. Sometimes they don't want to be the ones to jump ship. Sometimes they think it all fall apart if they left. Sometimes they don't want to be that person. You know, that person. I mean, Walridge, some of y'all that have been here for a little while, you know what I mean when I say that person. Walridge has been through hard times, and you don't, you don't want to be that person. But let me also say that I believe there's a good, clear biblical premise for following God wherever God goes. And I, 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 believe, I, I believe I'd sooner just leave my house then stay in my house and die spiritually if that's what it took to follow where God was. You know what Moses said? Moses said, Lord, if you don't go up, I won't go up. If you stay right here on this mountain, God, that's where I'm staying. I'll do whatever it takes to be where you're at. Obed-Edom was given a new path. I want you to notice, secondly, he was given a new purpose. We don't really know what the job of Obed-Edom was before this day because the job that Obed-Edom had before this day really didn't matter that much. But afterwards, we're told several times of some of the things that Obed-Edom does. Like in First Chronicles chapter 15 again, look what it says in verse 24. It's naming all those that were involved in the work of God. And it says, and Shebaniah, and Jehoshaphat, and Nethaniel, and Amasiah, and Zechariah, and Benaiah, and Eleazar the priest did blow with the trumpets before the ark of God. Listen to this. And Obed-Edom and Jehiah were doorkeepers for the ark. Man, it gave him a new purpose in life. You know what he saw? He saw that ark as his life's work now. That's my life's work. My job is to stay close to that ark. There's a lot involved in biblical Christianity. I'm aware of that. There's a lot of ministries. But can I boil it down and make it real simple? 
Real simple. Christianity, biblical Christianity, your job in biblical Christianity is this, to stay with God whatever God's doing. To do whatever God's doing. To let God do whatever God wants to do. You see, ever since you got saved, you became a doorkeeper of the ark. Your responsibility is to be where the ark is, but then also to let folks into where the ark's at. That's what a doorkeeper is, isn't it? That's what a doorkeeper is, isn't it? Somebody that opens the door so others can come in and see. That's your job. That's your job as a Christian. There's folks that are looking. Will you show them the way? I want you to notice a third thing. This isn't really my message, but it's just too good to pass up. Look at verse 21 of First Chronicles chapter 15. We find another job that Obed-Edom was involved in. It's describing the musicians. And it says, And Mattathiah and Eliphalel, and Mikneiah, and Obed-Edom, and Jael, and Azaziah, with harps on the Shemineth to excel. That word Shemineth describes a psalm or a praise or a melody that would be played before the Lord. Let me say that it gave him a new song and a new praise. I don't know what he did with that harp before then, but I know what he did with that harp after then. I don't know what it was you sang about before you got saved, but I know if you ever really get born again, I know what you'll sing about after you get saved. I know what you'll sing about and talk about after you get saved. It'll give you a new song, a new praise, a song that cannot be silenced, a joy that cannot be stolen. It will give you glory unspeakable when you get born again. It changed his life. So we see in Obed-Edom someone that is embracing of the presence of God. Notice thirdly, I want you to see in David someone that is enthusiastic at the presence of God. Now let me go ahead and tell you, you might have to take your independent Baptist hat off for a minute because the kind of things I'm about to preach on, they'll take your independent Baptist card away for you. I mean, there's some brethren that get real uncomfortable. They talk about David leaping and dancing. You ought to see the leaping and dancing some of the commentators do around this passage to try to find a reason that David didn't dance before the Lord. We understand the language of this. I understand that the dancing that David did for the Lord, it was not a sensual dance. The Hebrew word literally means to leap or to twirl. And can I just put it how we put it today, if it's all right? David got plumb happy before the Lord. He was rejoicing before God. And he got some, some old-timers used to call it a case of the can't help it. He just could not help but express himself. He felt himself a bubbling and a growing inside so much that if he didn't move, he was going to die. And he had to express himself before the Lord. We see him basking before the Lord in verse 13 through 16. It says, And it was so that when they uh, that bear the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fowl. Man, I mean, they hadn't, gone, they hadn't gone seven steps yet. And David said, let's pause for a minute and give something to God. You know that people that worship the Lord are people that give to the Lord. Oh, I know. We don't want... Let's, all, let's tighten her up now. Don't want to talk about giving. Might offend somebody. But the truth of the matter is, where the Spirit of the Lord there is, there is liberty. There is liberty. You'd be amazed what God can do with that little paycheck of yours. <laughs> and you'd, you'd find this. You won't be so defensive over it if you can fall in love with Jesus Christ. We're doing good. I told you earlier, I, I'm, not, I'm not padding. We've already took up an offering. If you don't want to come back tonight, you don't have to. All I'm saying is this, that when people... The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. And the only way you can get cheerful is in worship.
says in verse number 14, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. Now, some people have tried to say that David was dressed immodestly or inappropriately, but they don't know their Bible because the linen ephod was what the common everyday priest would wear. The reason that it embarrassed Michael so much was not because uh, he was uh, dressed immodestly, but when she talks about the shame of thy nakedness, what she's saying is, David, you ought to be dressed like a king. David, you ought to be... Look at where... What happened to the dignity of your office, David? David was more concerned with deity than dignity. And he was more concerned with worship than his reputation. And so he was girded with a linen ephod, the clothes that the priest would wear. The Bible says he danced. Verse number 15, So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with all this, careful now, with shouting. With shouting. Brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting. You know, let me tell you something. Everybody's so worried about wildfire. I'm just worried about any fire. I, I mean, really, is the problem we have in our independent Baptist churches that we worship too much? Is that really the problem? Is the problem in our independent Baptist churches that we're too lively? Is that the problem? I would propose to you that the problem is not that we worship too much, it's that we worship too little. And I'd propose to you that the problem is not that we're too lively, it's that we're too dead. And I'd propose to you that the problem uh, is not uh, that there is too much wildness and unsettledness in our churches, but there's too much dryness in our churches. We see there was shouting, the sound of a trumpet. With the sound of the trumpet, it makes me think of the Lord coming back. Verse 16, And as the ark of the Lord came into the city, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. We see his basking. But notice, secondly, his blessing. Look at the next few verses. What does it say? And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in his place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. The first thing he sought to do was to bless the Lord with his worship. That's the first thing that he sought to do. He said, I want my worship to be pleasing to God. I want it to be a sweet savor and a sweet smell into the nostrils of God. Now, I understand we have a mighty powerful flesh nature. And I understand that this is uncomfortable for some of us. I promise you worship is just as uncomfortable on my flesh as it is on your flesh. But boy, it does some good every now and then to just ignore everybody else and be concerned with what the Lord expects out of. What the Lord wants out of us. You know why most people don't worship? Because they're afraid of what the person next to them is going to say and going to think. They don't want somebody to turn around and look at them. I got news for you. You look like I do. People look at you anyway. Some of you are in the same boat. He sought to bless the Lord. But then notice the second thing. I like this. Look at verse number 18. And uh, as soon as David had made an end of offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now, I know that it says here in a moment, verse 19, that he dealt among all the people, uh, even among the whole multitude of Israel, as well to the women as men, to everyone a cake of bread and a good piece of flesh and a flagon of wine. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. But did you notice that little conjunctive word at the beginning of verse 19? The Bible says, and... In other words, this is a break in thought. And he did this, he did this, and he did this. So in other words, when it says that he blessed the Lord, and then it says he blessed his people, I don't think it's simply saying he blessed his people by giving them a cake of bread and a flagon of wine and a goodly piece of meat. I think what it's saying is this. Listen carefully. When they saw him blessing the Lord, it blessed them. 
B.R. Lakin used to say it this way. He said, I like when uh, the cup runs over because when Brother Cup runs over, Brother Saucer gets some. He gets some too. You'd be amazed how you might be a help to somebody else if you just let loose and worship the Lord. Preacher, ain't you afraid of wildfire? No, I'm not afraid of wildfire. Real fire takes care of wildfire. I'm not afraid of it. The Bible takes care of that. You know why a lot of churches... I won't say that. No, I'll go ahead and say it. You know why a lot of pastors don't like real worship? Because they're scared of it. They're scared they're going to have to sit somebody down. That's why. They're scared it's going to get out of control. Here's the problem. Spiritual control is not out of control. When the Spirit of God is in control, things are in control. Let me say this. I'd rather have a lively church and have to sit somebody down once every five years than have a dead church and never have to do anything. The the truth of the matter is, I I know those people, you know them too, that pastors are scared of. You've got that that friend probably or that that relative or that neighbor that, that, uh, you know, they they lean on the wild side and, you know, uh, you'd be afraid that they might get out of hand. Let me say that most people like that, where the preaching of the Word of God is, they don't try none of that nonsense. They don't try any of that nonsense. What I'm saying is this, we don't have to be worried. If it's of the Lord, it'll be right. And if it's not of the Lord, it ought to be driven out of the house of God, just like any kind of open sin, like adultery or fornication or uh, sodomy or anything else would be. We see Him blessing, or He blessed the other people. But then I want you to notice not only His blessing, we'll say a bit about His household in a second, but I want you to notice His boldness. What does it say? Michael looks at Him, and Michael says this, in uh, verse number, as she saw him dancing uh, and leaping, and she looked at him and, and said this, in, uh, down in verse number 20, she said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants, as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. She said, David, you embarrassed me today. Let me say that true worship always has critics. Always has critics. There will always be somebody that shows up to criticize. How did David respond? Did David do what most folks would have done? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. That's what most folks would have done. I didn't mean to offend you. Let me tell you something. We have taken the passage where Paul talks about meats offered to idols. You know what I'm talking about? I believe First or Second Corinthians chapter 8 or 9 is somewhere in there. If you've got a Bible, you'll find it. We have taken that passage about not eating meat lest it should cause my brother to stumble and should offend him. And we have taken that as a license to be spineless about everything. And we have said, well, if something offends my brother, then I just ought not do it. Let me tell you something. There's times that you've got to make a decision of who you're going to offend, your brethren or God. And there's some things you need in your life, whether it offends everybody and hair lips every independent Baptist and every preacher and every church member uh, from here to Tulsa. You need it. And we've taken that. And David would have done like, well, you're right. You're right, Michael. I shouldn't have got out and acted that way. You're right. That was undignified. Well, I don't see a problem with it, but if it offended you, I'm sorry, honey. But he didn't. He didn't. What does he say? Look at this. I like this. Maybe I'm just ornery and that's why I like it. But look what it says in verse number 21. And David said unto Michael, it was before the Lord. Now, we can pause right there and preach for the rest of the day. He said, I wasn't dancing for you. I was dancing for him. 
I like what happened. Mays Jackson one time was preaching, and uh, he, he was up, and, and if you knew Brother Mays, and you, you knew the way he was, he was up and he was preaching a big way, and the pastor of the church, he, he, said, he said that it was, uh, it was so dry in there that the center aisle was frozen, just cold as ice, and they hadn't worshipped in years and years, and the pastor was sitting back in a chair like this, and, and a little old lady got to shouting in the back of the church. And Brother Mays would be preaching on, she'd go, whoo! And Brother Mays would, would preach on a little bit more, and she'd say, glory! And that pastor started to get uncomfortable. And finally he said, Brother Mays. Brother Mays just ignored him and kept on preaching. She kept shouting, and he kept shaking. He said, Brother Mays. He kept hollering at him. Brother Mays just ignored him. Finally, he said, Brother Mays. You need to set that woman down. Brother Mays turned around and said, Brother, I didn't stand her up, and I'm not going to be the one to sit her down. David says, I wasn't dancing for you anyway. Let me tell you something. If you're shouting for everybody in this room, you ought not shout anyway. (laughs) You know? If you're amening just for everybody in this room, you ought not be amening anyway. If you're worshiping for everybody in this room, then you've got no business worshiping anyway. But if you're doing it for the Lord, then worship on, friend. Worship on. Because I wasn't doing it for you. said, it was the Lord. It was before the Lord, which chose me before thy father, before all his house. I don't think that would have gone over well in couples counseling, do you? When he said that. Which chose me before thy father. Before all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore will I play before the Lord. She said, you embarrassed me, David. David said, I embarrassed myself. He said, and I will yet be more vile than thus, and will be base in mine own sight. He says, I know it embarrassed you, it embarrassed me too. It always embarrasses me. Let me tell you something, if you won't embarrass your flesh, you won't ever worship. And most people that will not worship, it's because they will not embarrass their flesh. I know there's every kind. It takes every kind. And around Walridge, we've got every kind. I, I promise you. And there's some folks that, that, man, I mean, when they worship, it's loud. There's some folks they just sit and they weep. And there's some folks that, that it's like God just closes the closet door in around them and they just get alone with God. I'm not saying you have to worship like I worship. I'm not saying you have to worship like those around you worship. But I'm saying this, you do have to worship. That's a mandate of biblical Christianity. That's a part of the Christian life is worshiping. And you won't worship till you'll embarrass your flesh. It's always an embarrassment of the flesh. He says, I'll be more vile. <laughs> he says, if you think that was bad, you're not going to stop me from worshiping. And then notice what he says. He says, of those handmaids which thou hast spoken. Did you notice what she said? She said, the handmaids of thy servants. She said, here you are. To... And I'm just going to go ahead and just preach my third point along with it because it just fits so well. We see in in Michael someone uh, that is embarrassed by the presence of God. You can tell she was embarrassed by what she says. She says, here you are, you're the king of Israel. And you're out there in a linen ephod before the servants of our servants. That's what it means, isn't it? The handmaids of thy servants. Not just in front of the rest of the royal party. Not just in front of the dignitaries. Not just in front of the nobles. Not just in front of the house servants. But David, you had the nerve to get out there in front of the servants of our servants. Don't you know how embarrassing that is? David said, yeah. Yeah, I know how embarrassing it is. But I wasn't dancing for them. 
I was dancing for him. I'll be more vile than thus. We see her bitterness and her bashfulness. The Bible says she despised him in her heart. I wonder how many times. I know, I know how it is, friend. I, 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 I am somebody that does not abide foolishness well. Can I say that? I do not abide foolishness well as a person, as an individual. Don't y'all look like you you think I'm talking about you? Everybody relax. I don't abide foolishness well. I, I don't I don't like silly and fool. I know I mean I'm, I, I laugh, I joke, I I, I do, you know. But people that are genuinely childish and foolish and silly, I'm probably in the wrong profession. But I don't abide that well. And I know I know there's always foolishness. But we better guard our hearts because I believe God has great contempt for those that have contempt for those that love the Lord. I believe those that have contempt towards worship, God has great contempt for them. Because to say, to have contempt for worship is to imply that God's not worthy. Michael looked and despised David in her heart. I wonder how many times that marital issues stem from one spouse being more spiritual than the other. Has it ever occurred to you that David's greatest critic lived in his house and shared his bed? That, that David's greatest critic was the one that was supposed to love him the most and encourage him the most. You know, that's what a helpmeet is. They help you serve the Lord. And you, as a husband, ought to help them serve the Lord. We ought to be a blessing one to another and an encouragement one to another in serving the Lord. I wonder how many spouses won't worship because they're embarrassed at what their spouse might think. Hurt me too. I wonder how many spouses won't worship because they're afraid and embarrassed of what their family might think. If you're ever going to worship, you're going to have to overcome the insecurity of those that are closest to you. You know why we don't like to worship around those that are closest to us? Because we feel like they know us the best. And they're going to think us a hypocrite. Probably what Michael thought of David. She probably thought, here you are, David. You're not the rightful heir to this throne. My family is in ruin and you have the nerve to dance before the Lord. David says, I'll be more vile than thus. I don't think he's just saying, I'm going to be worse than I've already been. I think what he's saying is this. If it upsets you, you're going to continue to be upset because I'm not going to compromise my walk with God to appease you. Then notice finally her barrenness and I'm done. It's interesting the way God tags this on. It's almost like God's doing it on purpose. (laughs) Because it says, And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now you say, preacher, does that mean that, that if I'm a young person and want to have kids, that, that I won't have kids unless I work? No, that's not what it means. What it means is this, that a lack of worship will quench your fruitfulness. You say, preacher, do you mean I won't serve? Oh, you may serve the Lord, but you won't serve Him in the Spirit. There's two kinds of fruit in the Word of God, you know, correlating to the life of the believer. There's fruit in the sense of our work and rewards for the Lord. But then there's the fruit of the Spirit. And I think this, my friend, I think if we won't worship, it'll create a fruitlessness and a barrenness in our spiritual walk. It ain't no wonder she was so miserable. She wasn't right with God. Everybody that's not right with God is miserable on some level. And let me say this, that until you are willing to yield to God, you'll never be happy. You'll never have joy. You'll never be fruitful in your walk.